Well, good morning. I'm Jeff. In case you hadn't already picked that up on the way through, and uh, it's great to have this opportunity to share with you from the Word. Let's just pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning. And we pray that your spirit will take hold of those words and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, and so please keep that open. I will be putting the... uh, I didn't actually move that, did I? Stuart usually does this. I've got to get into the routine of this little clicky thing. So... um, yeah, we'll be looking at John 4, and, uh, but I will be putting the words of the text up as we go through, so you're not going to miss a thing if you can't read the Bibles like I can often not do. Did you know that Jesus' primary purpose in coming to earth was to open the way for people to have a relationship with God? It was not about starting a religion. Christianity is not a religion. It was not about having to follow a whole series of rules and regulations and sort of going through a whole lot of rituals. Jesus came to make a difference in our lives, to make a difference in how we do life. Jesus came to invite us to change both inside and outside. You see, real, meaningful, fulfilling lives begin with Jesus. And only through a close, personal relationship with Jesus can we ever hope to become the people God intended us to be. Only through a personal relationship with Jesus can we ever hope to understand the wonder of God's grace that he's shown to us. And only through a personal relationship with Jesus can we truly appreciate the depth and breadth of God's love for us. And only through a personal relationship with Jesus can we draw upon the power of God to fulfill God's purposes, for us to fulfill God's purposes in this world. So, what's this relation look like? How can Jesus make a difference in a person's life? There are many examples in the New Testament of how Jesus made a difference to various people's lives, but today I just want to look at one, and one only. How Jesus made the difference in the life of a woman. And that woman we read about in John 4. The passage begins with Jesus travelling with his disciples from Judea in the south of the country to Galilee in the north. It was a long walk and would usually take several days. The most direct route was through a place called Samaria, where the people were generally pretty antagonistic towards the Jews. Well, as the account starts, it's around lunchtime, and they came to a well along the road. And this well was about a kilometre outside a Samaritan town called Sychar. Jesus was tired And he called for a break. He's with his disciples. And he sat down beside this well. And his disciples, meanwhile, went off into the nearby village about a kilometre away to buy some food for lunch. While Jesus was sitting there, a woman came to draw water from the well. 
Now, this is really unusual because people usually fetch their water at the end of the day, in the cooler part of the day. But not only that, there was actually a well in the middle of the town of Sychar. But the woman, this woman didn't go there because she was something like a bit of a social outcast. And so she tended to avoid contact with the other women in the village. So she came in to draw water in the middle of the day at this well outside the village. Now Jesus would have known this. But he begins a conversation by firstly asking her for a drink. And she's somewhat taken aback by as it says in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. Not only that, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You see, Jews didn't associate or even talk to Samaritans. More than that, Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritan women. It was just a cultural no-no. But Jesus asks this woman for a drink of water. And that caught her attention. You see, Jesus finds a way to break down the barriers that were between them. And rather than asking to do something for her, as we might expect, he actually asks her to do something for him. And then Jesus responds with this very unusual statement. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. What does he mean by this? He's talking to a thirsty woman on a hot day about living water. You see, what he's doing, he's moving from the obvious felt need that this woman had to a deeper need in her life. The woman, you see, the woman thought she needed a drink thought she needed water, but Jesus' offer is of living water instead. Now this obviously struck a chord with the woman because she started asking questions. Sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with. They didn't usually carry buckets with them around, so he's he's sitting there without anything to fetch the water. And so she asked, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, something about Jesus actually reassured her and made her comfortable in asking this question. And the way she asked, she obviously wanted to know more. But her last question, are you greater than our father Jacob, was one that was going to test this new relationship because that was something that really could have aroused the anger in most Jewish men. Here's a Samaritan saying, our father Jacob. Now Jacob, as we all know, is the father of the Israelites, not of the Samaritans, or so the Jews taught. That statement would have usually started an argument. But it didn't with Jesus. He knew it was fruitless to engage in that kind of argument and because there were more important matters to focus on here. Because the next thing he says to her, to her is I've got some living water everyone who drinks this water in this well over here will be thirsty again 
But whoever drinks the water I give to them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling to eternal life. Jesus says he can meet needs in her life that she didn't even know she had. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who can meet the needs in your life. It doesn't matter how much you have in physical or material terms, you're still going to want more, you're still going to thirst more. Jesus is saying, I want to be the living water in your life and meet every need. This living water is described as welling up inside. That means it's flowing internally. We said eternally. It's welling up from inside of us. It doesn't come from outside. Jesus is telling her and he's telling us that God will come and dwell within us. And that's where our deepest needs are and that's where our deepest needs have to be met. The woman's reply shows that she still didn't quite understand what was going on. She says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Like many people, she's missing the point. Jesus is talking about a new life and she's still thinking about her physical needs. You see, the material world often blinds us to the spiritual world, that spiritual part of our beings. It is a reality. And sometimes we have to move the material things out of the way, move the physical things out of the way so we can see the spiritual and the real purpose God has for our lives. But Jesus keeps talking to her. He says, I want you to understand the thirst I really want to quench. In fact, the next thing he says to her reveals that he wants to satisfy a relational thirst in her life. He understands what this woman really needs, what she's really thirsty for. It's not water. It's relationships. So in verse 16, Jesus says, Go and call your husband and come back. But she says, I have no husband. Up to that point, the conversation had been flowing quite well. She'd been quite talkative. But now she responds with just four words. I have no husband. You know, guilt has the power to silence us. When we raise matters people feel guilty about, even notice how they go quiet very quickly. You see, Jesus understands our hearts. He sees inside of us. And he knows where we hurt. And he knows what we struggle with. And so in verse 17, Jesus says, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Look how Jesus reveals this this woman's entire life in just one sentence. Here's the real problem. You don't have true, genuine relationships. So there she is standing there. Jesus has opened opened the door to her heart, shown her that he's seen inside of her. And he says to her, I can meet the greatest needs in your life. 
He's exposed the sin in her life. It's not a secret anymore. So the question then is, what is she going to do next? How is she going to respond? Well, let's see. She firstly tries to change the subject. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Hang on, where did this come from? You notice she doesn't deny the truth. She just wants to divert the focus from it. It's getting a little uncomfortable here. So she went straight for the biggest religious argument the Jews and the Samaritans had. Now we do this a lot when our sin is confronted. We talk about something very contentious or religious, hoping to deflect the other person's attention. We haven't tried doing it with God because we don't like our failings being exposed. People are much more comfortable discussing religion than facing their sins. When you're, trying to, like when you're trying to share the good news with somebody and it comes down to this issue of God forgiving the worst things they've ever done, instead of talking about the practical, the real and the genuine, people want to talk about things like transcendental meditation or aliens or the problem of suffering and evil in the world. Why? Because we feel uncomfortable talking about our guilt. We are so frightened of condemnation that we we try to hide. And yet we shouldn't because Jesus only exposes it in order to lift it from us. It's not that complicated. It's really simple. Jesus comes and says, I want to forgive you. And you say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And he says, I forgive you. And it's over, finished, you're forgiven. You notice Jesus doesn't shame the woman for her diversion and asking the question because he understands. He doesn't condemn her. Instead, he answers the question honestly, giving her his full attention. He's very honest with her about the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. However, he answers her question in a way that points back to her deep need, her real need. And how God can fulfill it. That's the brilliance of Jesus. He says, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. All this argument, he's saying, it doesn't matter because someday we're not going to worship in either place. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. He doesn't lie to her. He says, the Jews have a truth that you don't have. Yes, he says, the time is coming and now has come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That one sentence in verse 24, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's one of the most amazing verses about worship in the entire Bible. Why do we worship God in spirit and in truth? Because God is spirit and God is truth. Our worship needs to reflect God's character. God is spirit and God is truth. He's both. Jesus cuts to the real answer and says, here's what you need. Genuine worship in spirit with your heart and in truth. 
Then the woman says in verse 25, this is a really interesting conversation, but it just reveals so much of the heart of Jesus. He says, I know that Messiah, who's called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. What's happening here? Well, first the woman wants to talk about religion. She's trying to divert attention. Then she says, let's talk later. She procrastinates. She defers. Let's talk when the Messiah comes. Not now. But Jesus doesn't let her put him off. He says, I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the one speaking to you. Whoops. I am he. He doesn't let her distract him. This is the climax of their whole discussion. Jesus tells her, I am the Messiah. You know, this is the only person he admits this to until he gets to his trial. Of all the people he talks to, all the encounters of people, he says to this woman, this Samaritan woman, this non-Jewish woman, I'm the one, the Messiah, the promised one. He is revealing his true nature. He's revealing himself to her so she knows she can trust what he's saying. And, and it also means she has a decision to make. She has to do, decide what she's going to do with the fact that she has met Jesus and what he's been saying to her. But then, at that very moment in verse 27, the disciples return. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Like good Jews, they ignored her. So while Jesus and the disciples are talking amongst themselves, in verse 28 it says, Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. She left. But the Holy Spirit was working in this woman's life. The living water was beginning to to flow. It was welling up inside of her. Her encounter with Jesus had made an impact. It made a difference. She didn't forget what Jesus had said. In fact, look at what she does. She goes back to town and excitedly says to everyone she could find, What happened there? Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Don't forget she is something of a social outcast in the town and she tended to avoid people. Now, she can't wait to get back to the village and to tell people, tell everyone she could, she could find. She wanted to tell them about this encounter with Jesus. Something incredible had happened to her. Her encounter with Jesus had changed her. And the townspeople wanted to see for themselves. Come and see someone who told me everything I ever did, she says. Come and meet Jesus for yourselves. But meanwhile, while this was going on, the disciples and Jesus are having a wonderful conversation. They'd gone into the village and buy, to buy food and now they're encouraging Jesus to eat. But he says to them in verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You want a great diet? How about this John 4.34 diet? To do the will of him who sent me. 
What is spiritual food? It's doing God's will. Doing God's will will satisfy our souls. What's God's will? In this passage, doing God's will for the disciples is labouring for the harvest. And the harvest is bringing people to know Jesus. He says, Don't say four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. It's as though Jesus is looking down the road towards the village and he sees this crowd of people coming towards him. And he's saying, look at all these people who need to know me. They are the fields ready for harvest, doing the will of God by telling people about Jesus. And in particularly about our relationship with Jesus. That's the sort of thing that will satisfy our spiritual hunger, that will feed us, that will nourish us. Notice a very interesting contrast in this passage. The disciples had just been in town, and what did they bring to Jesus? Food. The woman goes into town and brings the whole town back. The disciples missed something. Jesus was saying, you need to learn something from this woman. People want to hear the message, the good news of who Jesus really is because Jesus can and he will make a difference in your life. The harvest is ready. Look what happened next. The Samaritans urged Jesus to stay with them for another two days. They wanted more. And then in verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves that this man really is the saviour of the world. Were these the first Christians? A bunch of Samaritans? May well have been. Again, Jesus makes a difference. Not just to one woman, but to an entire town. Great story. It's a little, little sidetracks there, but it's a great story of this woman who encounters Jesus. And the difference he makes to her life. Can I ask you this morning, is Jesus making a difference in your life? Are you so enthusiastic about your relationship with Jesus that you just can't help talking about him to the people you meet? I like to think of it something like this. When we had our first baby. Labour took quite a few hours. It was uncomfortable, it was painful. But finally our firstborn was delivered. And we just wanted to hold him in our arms, to spend time with him. We wanted that moment to last. But something else was tugging at us. We wanted the world to know. Now this is the days before Facebook and mobile phones. You had to actually leave the baby and the mum and find a telephone somewhere in a hospital which you usually had to put coins in to make it work. I'm going back a fair way, I know. But you wanted to tell people, you wanted to tell the world that your baby had been born. There was a real tug, but you wanted to get back as soon as you could. You wanted to be there. Is your relationship with like Jesus? Is your relationship with Jesus like that? 
You want to be close to him. You want to be with him. And yet at the same time, you want to tell everybody you know how good it is to know Jesus. Is that true for you? If that's not the case, then there are just three steps I want to just quickly go through that you may want to consider. The first is to open your mind to God's power. In Ephesians 7, 19, there it is. Yep, we can read that. It says, uh, sorry? Six. Oh, sorry, it is two. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Typo. It says, I pray that you'll begin to understand how incredibly great God's power is to help those who believe him. It's the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago is the power that's available to us to make changes in our lives. This is the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, welling up in us. When we become Christians, he promised he would be like a spring of living water, welling up inside of us, changing us in the inside. What is it that seems impossible to change in your life? From a human perspective, there are a lot of things in our lives that are or seem impossible. If you could change them, you probably would have done it, but you can't. But if you look at it from God's perspective, God has power that we don't have. Hey, he created the universe. He created the world. He can do it. And when you open your mind to the real power of God, he can make incredible changes in your life that you never thought possible. God has the power to raise the dead. He can raise a dead marriage. He can raise a dead career. He can raise a dead dream. God can do anything. And this is the living water the woman at the well was promised and that God promises us. So step one, open your mind to the power of God. The second step is to open your heart to God's grace. Grace is when God gives you what you need instead of what you deserve. Grace is when God forgives you even, when you, even before you ask. Grace is when God gives you another chance to start all over again. Grace is the power God gives you to make changes in your life that you can't do on your own. We all need God's grace. So we need to open our hearts to God's grace. You see, we have nothing without God's grace. Everything we have in life is a gift from God. Where do you think you've got your brains, your health, your mind, your arms, your legs? Everything you have. You wouldn't even be alive if it were not for the grace of God. Literally every single thing in our life is there because God is good and he gives us what we need and not always what we deserve. That's the grace of God. Isn't that good? Sometimes I think we don't understand this, but the Bible says God wants to share us with his grace. Just like Jesus encountered with the woman at the well, God understands us better than we understand ourselves. God knows us and he knows what makes us tick. You know, God has watched every single moment of our life. He saw us formed in our mother's womb. He watched us take our first breath. He knows every thought we've ever had. He's seen it all and he still loves us unconditionally. That's called grace. 
He knows what's best for us. Even when we, know, when we don't know what's best, God knows what's best. God says, come to me. Bring the good, the bad, the ugly, the embarrassing, the stuff you're ashamed of, the stuff nobody else knows about. Bring it all to me and we'll work on it together. I know what's best for you. Trust me. The Samaritan woman at the well recognised Jesus' grace to her. His undeserved favour and acceptance. And it made a huge difference. When we recognise his grace to us, it can make a huge difference in our lives as well. Just remember that we can never earn God's grace. We will never deserve God's grace. We will never be good enough for God's grace. We can't buy God's grace. It's simply a gift, a gift of his love, his forgiveness, his help to change. All we need is to humbly accept it and watch the difference it makes in our lives. Is Jesus making a difference in your life? Well, first, open your mind to God's power. Second, open your heart to God's grace. And third thing, and lastly, is open your life to God's love. No one will ever love us more than God does. He loves us unconditionally. It's not based on anything we do. He loves us because he made us. He created us to love us. And he created us to know and love him back. He knows us inside and out and he still loves us. That's amazing. And nothing we have done is unknown to him. He knows it all. He sees it all. And he still loves us. Jesus proved how much God loves us by coming and dying on the cross. Paul says in Ephesians 3, have I got that right, Matt? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That Christ will live in you as you open the door, talking about your life, and invite him in. And that you will be able to feel and understand how long and wide and deep and high his love really is. And to experience this love for yourselves. My prayer today is that you will experience the love of God. Not that you just know it in your mind. If you've never felt it, then you've never been changed by it. It's only when you experience it that you feel, when you feel the love of God, that it starts transforming you from the inside. So open up your life to God's love. So you can feel it, experience it. You and I were made by God and for God. And until we understand that, life will not make sense. We were not put on this earth just to go to school, get a job, make a bunch of money, spend it, get married, have kids, retire, take up space, use resources, breathe the air and then die. No. We were made for an eternal relationship with God, one that goes on long past this life. Being a Christian believer is all about having an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus who loves us unconditionally and above all else, above all else. Focus on Jesus because Jesus makes the difference. He came to make a difference. And it is Jesus who can and will make a difference in your life. 
if you open your mind to his power, your heart to his grace, and your life to his love. Would you pray with me? Our dear Heavenly Father, there are things in our lives we know need changing. And as much as we know how, we want to open up our minds to your power and our hearts to your grace. Lord, thank you for loving us and for forgiving us. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. Help us to understand that more and more. Lord Jesus, help us to open our lives to your love and your grace and your power to change. Help us to get to know you more and more, day by day. We want to learn to trust you deeply. And we want you to be the manager of our lives and to start making the changes that we want and you want in our lives. For this we thank you. Amen.